Hi, this is Susie Rigdon, manager of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit and festival based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. For more info on the festival, which just celebrated its 20th year, and other programming we have coming up this spring, including our pop-up lit nights, visit our website, fallforthebook.org. We're pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud and particularly excited about our guest and Mason MFA alum, Liam Callanan. Liam Callanan is the winner of the 2017 George W. Hunt SJ Prize in Arts, Letters, and Journalism. He's the author of The Cloud Atlas, All Saints, Listen, and most recently, Paris by the Book. He serves in the English Department of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and was previously its chair as well as coordinator of its PhD program in creative writing. Liam, welcome and thank you so much for coming out to chat today. Thanks so much for having me out and I really appreciate that you've brought in a house band who will be kind of filling us in as we uh, talk to our conversation today. It's yes. great. A little background music makes me feel like I'm in Paris. Yeah, there's a recording something next door so we'll have some really interesting music. But you said no accordions, right? No accordions. No, no accordions at all. So speaking of Paris, uh, Paris by the Book, you've written about touring Paris with your kids um, with your favorite books like Madeline and the Red Balloon, uh, which the Edie family also does. What does a literary tour give to us that a guidebook might not? Oh, I think absolutely everything. I think the best guidebooks are very literary, but I think following in the footsteps of a book is a great way to enter into a city and that you might not understand in the same way. And it's a great way to enter into the mind of that author too. And I think it's a, a great way to kind of step into the pages of a book, which we do anyway as readers, but it's really something altogether different when you're actually out there in the world and you're walking through a book. The New York Times has a wonderful uh, book out now, a series of articles in their travel section called Footsteps. And they are doing a little bit what my characters do in this book and what my family did. We did it for the Wall Street Journal, though, which was we went on a walking tour of Paris and to make it a little bit different uh, and also to make it more interesting for my kids who were all very young at the time, I just gave them different children's books and said, why don't you lead us around Paris? And so one of them got uh, The Red Balloon, which is also a beautiful film, and another got Madeline, and the third got The Adventures of Hugo Cabret. And uh, each one of them had a day to kind of walk us around the Paris that they saw in their book. And it was just an amazing way to see the city because their eyes lit up when a certain thing aligned with something that was in the book. And even better with places like in Madeline, much to contrary to popular opinion, the old house in Paris that was covered with vines does not actually exist, although a couple schools make a claim that it's their school. But Bemelman's made it up whole cloth, which gave us freedom uh, to go around and audition different buildings to see which one we thought would be Madeline's house. And we finally found one that belonged to a German historical institute, but nevertheless, we thought it was perfect for her. Uh, and so that's ever since then, I've always tried to experience um, cities that I visit uh, by reading a novel or two because it's just a different way of entering the city. So when you were touring with your kids, what was the favorite destination that you all settled on or was there one for each book? That is a good question. Their favorite place, I think, in Paris uh, that we found was uh, the Pont des Arts, which is a bridge over the Seine. And we were trying to figure out exactly which bridge uh, that Madeline falls into the Seine from in her book, Madeline's Rescue. And so my girls very much wanted to stand up on the railing of the bridge like Madeline, but not fall in the Seine, they assured <laughs> me. But I was not very much into that, and neither were the local policemen, so we didn't get to do that. But nevertheless, 
they quite got a kick out of um, experiencing Madeline and the danger of Paris uh, through those eyes. What was your favorite spot? My favorite spot is Menil Monton, uh, which is up in the attic of Paris, uh, or that's my term for it, not their term. But over on the, if you're looking at a map of Paris or if Paris was a clock face around one or two, uh, is uh, a hilly neighborhood called Menil Monton, which is where the red balloon was shot. And it was a gritty neighborhood back in 1956 when Albert Lamaurice made the film and still somewhat of a gritty neighborhood today. But uh, everything looks a lot the same as it did when it was filmed, except for this park that they put in, which actually took out a lot of the windy streets. But one of the things I like about it, in addition to the fact that it's um, so redolent of everything that uh, was in the film, is it has the best view of Paris uh, is from up there. A lot of people, a lot of tourists go up to the top of Sacré-Cœur to look out over the city, but you can't actually see the Eiffel Tower from the top of Sacré-Cœur. But a little bit, a couple kilometers to the um, east of that is Menil Montant, and you can see the whole city at your feet, and you can see a view that no one else sees, and there are no tourists up there. In fact, there's always rarely anybody up there. There's also a wonderful little bar called Montcoeur. Uh, what is it called? Montcoeur Belleville. Um, and so it's a great, Mon- my heart Belleville, and uh, it's a great place to go. It's also kind of known as one of the uh, best places for Chinese food in Paris. Um, so if you're looking for craft beer or Chinese food, then head up to the 18th and 19th arrondissement and uh, you'll be very well treated and you have a great view as well. So now I'm going to pause the podcast so I can go buy my plane tickets and go back over to Paris because it's been a very long time. Uh, No, so were there any places that you really wanted to put in the book because the the Edie girls, they travel around the city um, as well. Was there anywhere you didn't get to put in that you really wanted to? I mean, there's a ton of stuff I wanted to put in all of Paris, and I didn't quite get a chance to. There's a, there's a neighborhood between Menil Montant and Sacré-Cœur, again, on the northern uh, district of Paris called the, the Goutte d'Or, which is a drop of gold. It's the African neighborhood, the old, old, old uh, historic African neighborhood in Paris. And it's just an amazing collection of shops and sidewalk vendors and um it's just full of colors and sights and sounds and smells. It's just, it's an amazing part of Paris. And again, very, very few people, um, tourists anyway, American tourists get up there. Um, but I, I had a wonderful visit when I went and I met some really cool people and tasted some really neat stuff. And so I wish I'd figured out a way to put that into the book. Uh, another thing that I didn't put in the book, but I walked all the way out there and it was a really interesting walk was the uh, French Foreign Legion's office, uh, or actually fort compound uh, just outside Paris, which is where you go if you, in fact, want to go sign up and uh, erase your name and join the Foreign Legion and disappear for a few years. And it was really interesting. It's it's actually located in a very incongruously suburban setting. Um, and then once you pass these little low apartment buildings, there the fort looms behind a big moat. And... Uh, it, I suddenly had a feeling like this is what these all these young backpackers, as I put in my head, or criminals of various stripes, or whoever joins the foreign legions now. Um, this is the walk that they take, and as soon as they disappear through that that uh, portcullis, like they become anonymous and disappear. And it was kind of while I got close enough for the soldier to say, you know, what the hell was I doing? And I tried to say something about like, is there a museum I can come visit? And he kind of held his gun a little bit more seriously. And so I backed (laughs) off. But um, if I could have figured out a way to work that into the book, I would have, but uh, I wasn't, I wasn't able to. That sounds like another book or a travel article or something like that. So of course, one location in the book is uh, the bookstore that Lee buys. 
Um, can you can you talk a little bit about that? That comes from a real life experience, right? It does. It does. So on that trip where my girls and I were leading around Paris, this is great. It's like I've, if your listeners can hear that music in the background, it's very much like my Paris experience where music was coming at you from every side. But um, on the last day of our trip to Paris with our girls, we went into this bookstore, an English language bookstore, which confusingly the word for bookstore in French is librairie, which looks like library. And so my girls are like, oh, it's a library, but it's also a bookstore. <laughs> in any case, they went in, they flopped down in the corner, and uh, the woman who ran the bookstore kind of looked a little bit wistfully at my girls and then looked at us, and um, the stop was very lonely. We were the only people in there. And she said, you know, and she talked about how her daughter had gone away to school and her husband was no longer with her. And uh, she said, would you guys... I'm thinking. I'm thinking of closing up the shop, and I said, "Well, you know, we we can go anytime. We we're all done here." She said, "No, no, closing for good." And but the thing is, I was hoping that I could sell the store to someone else who would appreciate it as much as I did. And you have daughters, and they clearly love books, and you love books. So would you would you like to buy the store? And my wife and I gave each other a long look, <laughs> and we're very responsible people. Drive a Kia, you know, save our coin, and so it was just. We said no, but it was a very long walk to the metro as we thought about what our life would be like if we ran a bookstore in Paris, at least for like the seven months that our money would hold out and then we would be bankrupt and have to return to the States <laughs> with our tail between our legs, but we would have gotten to run a bookstore in Paris. And uh, I thought about that so much that eventually that became the kernel of my novel, imagining what it would be like to run a bookstore in Paris. The sad part of that story is that indeed the store did close after that and um, no one bought it. In subsequent trips to Paris, I would visit and it was just as haunting. Sometimes there was another store there, not a bookstore. And then after a while, it was just hauntingly empty, this red edifice, which oddly enough looks exactly like the cover of my book, even though I did not describe that to anyone. The designer just, we had a mind meld and apparently the book on the cover of Paris by the book looks exactly like it did. But the story also has a happy ending in that after the book came out, the woman who ran the store sent me an email and we got in touch. And uh, there must have been some magic in the air because uh, she announced that she had figured out a way to reopen the store. Oh, wow. Uh, and so the, the Red Wheelbarrow, which is the name of the store, which is by far the most perfect bookstore name ever, mm. um, the Red Wheelbarrow, because so much does depend on a Red Wheelbarrow. Yes. And uh, she's reopened. It's in a different part. The old store was in the Marais, and the new uh, store is uh, down near the Sorbonne uh, on the left bank. But it's wonderful. And I'm going to... I hope go there in March and be able to see it in person. I'm very excited about it. So with all this time spent in bookstores, and I imagine going to talk about Paris by the book, you've been in many bookstores. What do you think makes a great bookstore? Tons of books. That sounds funny <laughs> to say, but uh, I don't like the... the. There's some stores which are can be very spare. Sometimes um, a store will kind of just have like... It, I understand the the importance of kind of a clean, well-designed setting. But I like towers and towers of books. I like books that are too high to reach. I like books stacked in the ends at the end of the aisle. Um, I will say not many bookstore owners agree with me on that. A, a tidy store is a good store, but I just like feeling almost claustrophobically enclosed by books. I want them almost tumbling down all over me. Um, so that's what, so to me, that's what, one of the things that makes a bookstore great is just a tumult of books. Uh, another thing, of course, and the most important thing are great people and great staff. I've never been in a great bookstore that doesn't have a great um, bookseller uh, that's not staff of great booksellers, each of whom has a passion for books that uh, far outstrips their, you know, 
ability to be compensated ever paid back by the world for all the work that they do safeguarding civilization. But uh, I think, you know, I've discovered this in a couple stores and my daughters will be thrilled to hear this and also uh, surprised to hear this, that I think another final ingredient of a great bookstore is a cat. Yes. I think a good bookstore really needs to have a cat. We have two cats at home and they drive me crazy. That's why my daughters will be surprised to hear me say that. But no, you cats and books really go together. And uh, and and if I see a cat in the store, I know it's a place, well, the cat's hanging out here. So I might want to hang out here too. As a fellow cat owner, I agree. Uh, they also, their tails make wonderful bookmarks. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> so, well, I mean... How, how long in general did you spend or have you spent in Paris? And was that all your research or did you have to do additional research to write Paris by the book? I had to do a ton of research. It was very nerve wracking actually writing about Paris um, because everyone has a conception of Paris in their head, including people who have lived there for many years and including Parisians. But um, in fact, one of the things that my book is about is about these myths of Paris that we all form in our heads based on the books about Paris that we've read. But the the research I did, and that's why it's been fun to kind of joke about the musicians in the neighboring studio. One of the things I did for Paris, I made multiple visits. I've never, I've never lived there, but I, I got to visit there quite a few times. And one of the ways I visited Paris when I was back home was by uh, listening to these wonderful people on the internet uh, and SoundCloud and YouTube uh, wander major cities of the world uh, with microphones held high and just record ambient sounds. And they put up these hours long tracks. And uh, some of them do tours, and but I don't like the narrated tour of the city. I just want something to work by. And so I would go and I would get one of these two or three hour tracks, uh, which was someone walking across, say, Paris or walking through a particular neighborhood of Paris. And I would just plug in, put on my headphones, and suddenly I was there. And I didn't hear any accordion music, but I did hear um, kind of buskers from all around the world. I heard English spoken, I heard Russian spoken, Chinese, I heard French spoken. I, uh, I heard the hee-haw, hee-haw of the sirens, uh, her motos whizzing by. And uh, for that, I could sit at any Starbucks in Wisconsin and I would immediately be transported to Paris as soon as I turned on that sound. Uh, and still today, it's like a wonderful way for me to kind of visit without really visiting there. So it was very transporting that. So that was that was a way that I kind of allowed myself to saturate myself in Paris without actually having to buy a plane ticket every Friday, even though that's what I really wanted to do. <laughs> so is this is this the key to writing strong settings? Because um, you know your your novel, The Cloud Atlas, also had Alaska past and present as being this like really um, main figure in the story. I think so. And I think what I did with Alaska was a little bit similar. I also used audio. I mean, one of the things I did with the Cloud Atlas, I didn't have ambient sound of Alaska, but I did tune into Alaskan radio stations every morning. And uh, and that was actually, I, folk, I restricted myself to only listening to Alaska. So I got all my world news filtered through Alaska Public Radio. And I wound up joining uh, the local, the native radio station in Anchorage and KNBA, um, which is an amazing radio station. Uh, and they actually, they sent a note out to all the membership people. They, we have your mugs. Could you stop by the station and get them? And I lived quite a lot ways away at the time. So, but actually it was great. I published the book and then I was able to go by the station and pick up my mug. But I, audio is really important to me. And I think also just reading around a place. And so during the writing of Paris by the book, I tried to read not books that were set in the present day because I didn't want them to overlap with mine, but I tried to read as many different uh, people writing about Paris as I could. Because again, I wanted to interrogate that myth 
myth of like the Paris that we all construct in our heads. Uh, and so I did the same thing with Alaska as well. Setting setting is incredibly important to me. Without, uh, I wouldn't be a very good Beckett. Uh, I need my stage furnished with all kinds of things. <laughs> I would need people to have an, a setting they can interact with. And, I mean, the other thing I did on these most recent trips to Paris, I almost never went inside. I spent most of my time, as I, I didn't even go inside like buses in the metro. I just walked. I walked across the whole, I walked a lap of the entire city. And uh, it was, I think, I can't remember, it was like eight, 12, 16 miles. And, uh, but I saw everything. I needed to see how Parisians live their daily life. And I knew that I wouldn't see that inside the Louvre, but I would definitely see it outside the, you know, the local supermarket or bakery, um, and just in the streets. And, uh, and to this day now, when I still go back, I just spend most of my time walking and soaking it all up. So with all this walking and and listening and reading around, how long does it take you to research and write a novel like this? Oh, two or three weeks. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I wish. It takes forever. I I think that uh, it's only done when they take it away from you. I would continue to do the, I would would still be, I mean, in some ways I am still researching Paris by the book, Um, but in both the case of like uh, the Cloud Atlas and uh, Paris by the Book, which were two books I had to heavily research, I just I realized at some point I had to start writing the story, and so I would I would keep researching forever. So having to know that I had enough, that's a hard question. As long as my characters weren't stumped by what they saw across the street or knew where they were going to get their food that day, uh, once I had the kind of food and shelter established and I knew enough about those things, I could start extrapolating from there. But uh, I'm not sure exactly. I'm not sure exactly if I could ever consider my research done. I'm always learning new things. Yeah. So um, I read in a, an interview where you were talking about, um, especially for the Cloud Atlas, you came across, is it right, you came across the Japanese balloon bombs in a footnote, or that's how you typically find little ideas? Is I do. I, the Well, it wasn't necessarily, well, it was kind of a footnote in the Cloud Atlas, which is set in World War II Alaska and concerns the balloons that Japan sent over at the end of World War II, which are these huge paper balloons filled with hydrogen, which have bombs attached to them. And they would just float across the Pacific with the help of the Japs stream and then bump into something in the United States. So that was the plan. They launched about 10,000 of them. Only 300 have been found so far. So they think a lot were left at sea, but uh, there's probably still to be some to be found. In any case, the American authorities documented the, what they found around each balloon landing of those 300 or so. And in one of them, which was near Bethel, Alaska, it was described that uh, they had discovered a postcard written in a boyish hand in Japanese by a young boy to his father. And I think the thinking was it was kind of like a message in a bottle, this boy working on you know, the front lines because children were all that were left to work in the factories at that point in the war, had, was trying to reach out to his father somehow. But it just planted a seed with me, and I thought, well, this could be something. I, this could unwrap. And so just kind of worrying that little grain of sand into a pearl uh, was how that book came to be. And I think Paris by the Book was in that same sort of way in the sense that like, here was this book front, this storefront in Paris. How did it come to be and what is it now? And what does it mean to visit Paris uh, through books? Do you have any other footnotes or little tidbits that you have waiting in the wings you can 
talk about that you're thinking about? I don't know. I just I just read uh, the other day. I was researching a, uh, another book, and I was reading about Foo Fighters, which I knew as a band, but I didn't know that it's also the name of balls of fire that were chasing World War II pilots around Europe and Japan, and are now dismissed as perhaps just like tire pilots. Uh, but at the time, there was they established a commission, and they were really investigating these things as actual UFOs. And I thought, why don't not more people know about these flaming balls of fire that were dashing around the pilots, never hitting the planes, they're just moving around, and very serious men thought this. So I don't really know if I've got another book in me about World War II, and certainly not about um, uh, uh, autonomous balls of fire, but who knows, <laughs> maybe. I give that off to whoever's listening to this podcast. All right, so shifting gears a little bit. Um, so. In the, in the bio said you um, were coordinating the PhD program at your university and worked in the department. Um, what trends are you seeing in graduate and PhD programs for creative writing and any tips for people looking to get getting into higher ed for creative writing? Sure. Uh, well, I think the tip is that you should come to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for your PhD, <laughs> which is the, the campus where I work. I think the tips I see generally is like, I think the writing's getting more and more amazing every year. It's getting harder and harder in our program, at least to um, admit students, because the, the level of writing is really high. And I give a lot of credit to all the undergraduate creative writing uh, majors that are proliferating around the country. Like people are coming to us with a, a much higher degree of polish and finish and creativity than we saw, I don't know, even 20 years ago. Uh, I think on the the trend on the graduate side, uh, the graduate degree side, it is getting sadly more difficult to get a job with just an MFA. Um, and even with an MFA and a book, that used to be the recipe for a job. With an MFA in hand and a book, you could plausibly apply for and get a job most places. Now, to hear my students tell it, it's more like... If you have a PhD, uh, and we happen to be one of the programs that offers a PhD in creative writing, I have noticed that my students can get a job with a PhD in hand and not a book. Um, but it's a lot of time and challenge, and I think that my advice to students who are interested in a PhD is that you really want to do the scholarly side of things, too. So our PhD is kind of like a split personality between uh, critical work and creative work. And if you want to go on to a PhD program, I think you need to be someone who's interested in both sides of that English major, like creating your own work, but then engaging critically with uh, the work of uh, people who have come before you. I think, it's a, I think it's a great degree, but it also is for a particular sort of person, because some people, they really just kind of focus on their own craft. And for them, I think the MFA is great. And then just to kind of keep working on your work. Um, but for people who are interested in maybe going on to teach in a classroom setting or really want to engage with writing in a, some sort of a critical or theoretical way, the PhD is the way to go. Really great advice. All right. So last question. Are there any new places that have caught your eye since Paris? Oh, that's a good question. Well, Fairfax, clearly. And the, <laughs> the George Mason campus is so much more exotic than I knew. I... Uh, I would say just about every place now fascinates me. Over the summer, I was in um, Hong Kong very briefly, and I have to say that is an endlessly fascinating city. And uh, the layers of history there and all that's going on, and particularly the, all that's going on uh, intriguingly with the world of writing, really, really fascinated me. So I'm, I'm not sure if that's where my next book is set, but something is going to be set in Hong Kong next. I'm just not sure what yet, but I can't wait to take readers there if they're willing to make the trip. 
All right, you heard that. Listeners, buy your plane tickets and then make sure you buy all of Liam's books because he's going to take you around the world. Thank you so much, Liam, for coming out and talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Mason Out Loud. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at, at Mason Out Loud. And please remember to visit fallforthebook.org for information about this year's festival. Thanks again for joining us and happy reading. Happy reading.